Hi, welcome to episode 21 of Global Exchanges, a podcast about foreign exchange markets and related issues. I'm Greg Anderson. In this week's episode, my co-host Stephen Gallo and I will be talking about the meteoric rise in natural gas prices in Europe and what that should mean for the euro. The title for this episode is Euro Out of Gas. Hi, I'm Stephen Gallo, a London-based FX strategist. Welcome to Global Exchanges, presented by BMO Capital Markets. Hi, I'm Greg Anderson, a New York-based FX strategist. I'm Stephen's co-host. In each weekly podcast like today's, we discuss our perspectives on the global economy and the foreign exchange market. We also bring in guests from the FX industry and from related financial markets, like commodities. We strive to make this show as interactive as possible, so don't hesitate to reach out by going to bmocm.com slash global exchanges. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates or subsidiaries. Thanks for the intro, Greg. And for the record, it's October 13th. And in the FX markets quarter to date so far, although it's still quite early, we've seen a very clear divergence between net energy importing currencies, which have underperformed, and net energy exporting currencies, which have clearly outperformed. And at the bottom of the list in G10 are the euro and the yen. Thanks for describing the picture of FX price movement, Stephen. Is there any other image in your mind that really stands out right now? Yes, I do have an image in my head, Greg, and it's the image of Russian President Vladimir Putin taking questions from reporters at the start of Russian Energy Week in Moscow today. And given how much natural gas prices have soared this year, I'm thinking there's got to be a degree of irony in this picture. So tell us, Greg, why is Putin smiling? I'm pretty sure Putin is smiling because of the evolution of energy prices, particularly natural gas. To get this rolling, let's start by introducing a Bloomberg ticker code. The code is TTFGDAHD. That code is the price of natural gas for delivery in the Netherlands one day ahead. The price is admittedly in funky units because it it is expressed in euros per megawatt hour with an underlying assumption on the volume of gas needed to produce a unit of electricity. So for those who can't pull up TTF, GDAHD, Stephen, can you tell us what that price has done so far in 2021? I certainly can. Basically, the price has gone from 20 euros per megawatt hour in April to 90 euros today. And about 50% of that move, it looks like, has occurred in the last month and a half, just eyeballing it using the chart. Uh, But Greg, for the benefit of our listeners, because there is seasonality in the price of natural gas, can you take a stab at making an adjustment for where prices are today relative to what the normal price would be for this time of year? You're right about the seasonality. Spot gas prices tend to rise in the fall, stay high in the winter, and then drop in the spring. So for my seasonal adjustment, I've looked at average price of Dutch delivery gas for the 10-year period from 2011 to 2020. Over that period, the average was, uh, we'll round it to 19 and a half euros, with a high of 26 euros uh, and a low of 11. So today's price of, call it 91 euros, is four and a half times the quote unquote normal price. 
and three and a half times the high of the previous 10 years. Right, Greg. So that doesn't sound like a good thing for the European economy. But before we dive into the effects of the crisis on the European economy and the euro, I think it would be useful to try and dissect how we got to this spot in the first place. And from my perspective, the underlying issue here is policy related. It's policy. Uh, and therefore, that means it's kind of structural in nature. Um, certainly, there are short-term transitory factors involved, like poor weather, low gas reserves related to a cold spring, uh, the post-COVID spike in demand. All of those factors are in play here. But if you do a condensed sweep of the policy backdrop, you can also see, I think, that there are a lot of longer-term factors involved too. Just to name a few of them, the phasing out of coal power plants, Germany's decision to shift away from nuclear power, the accelerated EU-wide push for the transition to renewable energy. I mean, that has placed a lot of strain on European natural gas supplies. It's also put additional strain on Europe's electrical grids, EU-wide carbon taxes under the emissions trading system, Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2, uh, which are highly intertwined with Europe's dependence on Russian natural gas exports. And I think, Greg, that last point, the dependence on Russian natural gas exports, that is the icing on the cake, so to speak. And I think it's the icing on the cake for, for two important reasons. One, because the EU is going to be competing with a lot of other economies for natural gas and LNG supplies in the months and quarters ahead. And that list includes China. And two, because the EU has made it so clear how rapidly it wants to transition to renewables, there isn't a lot of incentive for suppliers like Russia to invest in more capacity. And that is why I think this is a very long-term story, not just a 2021 story. Right, Stephen. Sounds ominous, and not just for the short term. Since we're ultimately going to circle back to foreign exchange, and FX is always the comparison of two situations for any given fundamental, I think it is useful to contrast what is happening with European natural gas to what is happening in the U.S. For the U.S., the benchmark Bloomberg ticker code is simply NG1, which is the NYMEX front future price for natural gas to be delivered in Louisiana near the mouth of the Mississippi River. So for U.S. gas, today's price is roughly twice the 10-year average for the 13th of October. And the price has roughly doubled since April. So just to summarize the comparison, the natural gas shock to the European economy is about twice the size of the natural gas shock to the U.S. economy. That's the comparative we're dealing with here. That's a very useful comparison, Greg, particularly as we move to discussing the economic and FX market impact of the crisis. Europe always astounds me because of the very high number of moving parts involved in the picture, particularly because you have this confluence of national and supranational laws and policies. It's complex, to put it lightly. Uh, but in terms of the economic and currency impact, I think we can conclude pretty decisively at this stage that this is a bearish development which works through a few different channels. So the first channel, I think, is it's a tax on economic growth because of the effect on corporate profit margins and quite possibly path through to consumers and maybe even household sentiment about economic prospects. The second channel, I think, is the balance of payments. And the worry here is not only that the situation we've been discussing reduces 
the trade surpluses. The follow-up question to that is, what if smaller trade surpluses trigger additional forms of EU trade protectionism? And I raise that question because higher input costs affect the relative competitiveness of EU firms. And at the end of the day, the fundamental issue here is one of energy security. Uh, the third channel that this uh, works bearishly through, I think, is ECB policy. Um, for the time being, the approach has been of the ECB has been to signal a willingness to look through the inflation overshoot and concentrate on the hit to economic growth. And I think part of the story here is that there is still a lot of debt issuance that the ECB needs to soak up in 2022. The central bank always seems to be biased towards keeping euro area credit spreads narrow. So I think those are the three channels this works bearishly through. The one caveat, though, to this dovish ECB view uh, that we're talking about is if the euro weakens materially from here and the ECB is forced to dial up its hawkishness. I'm not sure how it does this smoothly, given how comfortable the bond market has become with ECB support. But there is definitely something in the notion that a much weaker euro could lead to more re-steepening of European yield curves. So just coming back to compare and contrast the eurozone with the U.S., so we can talk about Europe's primary exchange rate, euro dollar. You call the nat gas price spike something akin to a tax that impacts businesses that use natural gas to power factories or heat stores, or alternatively tax on consumption by households. The U.S.'s tax increase is only about half the size of the tax increase in Europe. And then when we get to the balance of payments, the U.S. produces its own natural gas and is, in fact, a, a slight net exporter. I guess for now, we'll have to see about five years from now when all of the U.S. wells have uh, been depleted. But anyway, for now, while New Yorkers might not be happy about paying more for natural gas to heat their apartments and businesses, the money goes to Texas, so to speak. So it stays inside the same economy and the same currency. The last issue you pointed out, central bank policy, I would just say that the extent that rising energy prices bring forward rate hikes, that is far more likely to be the case for the Fed than for the ECB. So in summary, any way you slice it, it would appear that this evolution of natural gas prices over the past six weeks should be a negative for euro dollar. I guess the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Eurodollar has moved from, let's call it, 118.5 to 115.5 while this energy crisis is unfolded. Has the Eurodollar decline been big enough, or should we expect a further adjustment lower? I don't know, Greg, that we should take it as a given that there will be another leg lower in Eurodollar, but that is how I think the current balance of risk is skewed for the currency pair, definitely lower for the time being, if for no other reason than the fact that it's difficult to see how policymakers globally will be able to engineer a completely smooth landing without any bumps in the road. And that's, of course, in addition to the euro area's fundamental backdrop. So I pass it back to you, Greg. Is there anything we're missing in this picture? I think maybe the only thing we might be missing is positioning. You mean the fact that investors are already short euros? Yes, Stephen. I would characterize the euro short position now as pretty darn big, having grown from uh, small short in August when this whole saga began. So basically what FX investors have done is they have anticipated the balance of payment impact on euro and, and sold it in advance. 
And if something happens that forces them out of those positions, but full balance of payment effect is realized, then we could get some funky euro balance that doesn't make a lot of sense otherwise. That's perfect, Greg. I think this is a great way to end the podcast. Uh, Basically, I think it's going to be an interesting winter. I'll leave it at that. Thank you, listeners, for joining us again. That's a wrap. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Global Exchanges. Listen to past episodes and find transcripts at bmocm.com slash global exchanges. We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email or reach out to us on Bloomberg. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.